Well, brethren, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 15. And as you make your way there, let me mention some things about this psalm before we even read it together. Our last few psalms have taken us into the throes of supreme conflict. There was the assault of enemies that led the psalmist in Psalm 13 as though he felt abandoned by God. There was the persistent pursuit of God-rejecting men in Psalm 14 who trampled the people of God as though God doesn't see the fool who rejects the Lord. In the midst of these psalms and other psalms of conflict, like Psalm 3 and 9 and 11 and so forth, when that conflict rages, there is one thing that steadies the heart of the believer, and it's his communion with God. The Lord remains the refuge of the needy saint. He is, as was prayed, the lifter of our head. He's the God who cares for man, who provides, who pities, who protects our soul. And when it seems as though all the angry powers of hell are unleashed against us, whether within or without, there is one fact that brings us comfort. The Lord brings us near into fellowship. Psalm 15 is a reflection on our communion with God, that fellowship of the near presence of the Lord. Of course, we know there is an experience of this near communion with God in this life, and there's also the hope of a deeper fellowship with the Lord in the future, those pleasures forevermore at His right hand. Remember Jesus said, Matthew 5.8, Blessed are the pure in heart. For what? They shall see God. So who is it that will be near to God both now and in the day to come? Who's going to taste the abiding fellowship of the life of God with you both in this life and beyond? Well, it's those who are pure, those who are righteous, who have not a facade of godly living, but who are devoted to the Lord from the heart. That's the point David is making in the psalm we're going to read together. And let me pray for us as we give our attention to Scripture. Lord, our God, as was just prayed, how lovely is Your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Our soul longs and, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. Lord, we want to be near to You. We want to hear Your Word addressing us. And Lord, we pray that You would shine Your light on Your truth. We pray that You would instruct us We pray that You would deepen our knowledge of You and our desire to live in a way that honors Your holy name for Your saving purposes. So Lord, enlighten our eyes by the power of Your Spirit. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hear now, brethren, Psalm 15. A Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in Your tent? Who shall dwell on Your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Well, thus far, 
God's Word, and may He bless this Word to our hearts tonight. Christians often have two responses to Psalm 15. On the one hand, some hear the requirements for righteous living in the psalm, and they say, this psalm sounds like graceless religion. A works-based righteousness where you earn God's favor. Well, that's clearly a false understanding. Even in the call to righteous living in the law of God, there is yet a provision for sacrifice in view of your sin. Indeed, the nearness of God has been initiated by grace and it's sustained by grace. The Ten Commandments are given in the context of the grace of God. Live like this because I've redeemed you. But on the other hand, some Christians, by focusing on grace, some read this psalm and they say, this text isn't focused at all on my individual purity. It's only talking about Christ. And He is all our righteousness. And while that last statement is true, only Jesus procures for us right standing with God through His obedient life, His death, and His resurrection. Yet, the righteousness of Christ graciously given to those who believe in Jesus does not produce in us presumption and disobedience. Walking away to the Lord and saying, grace, 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 grace. In the words of the Apostle Paul, we do not go on sinning so that grace may increase. We died to sin. How can we live it any longer? The grace of God that saves us is also grace that trains us to live for our King. In other words, integrity or holiness matters. It's not a popular message in today's world to tell people holiness matters. But the author of Hebrews says it like this, without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. So brethren, in our psalm, when enemies rage and afflictions fall, those who love the Lord are those who yet delight in His law and seek holiness. They live a life consecrated to God. That's what this psalm is about. It focuses us on the fact that the godly are characterized by the pursuit of communion with God and walking to please Him. For as 1 John 1.6 will say famously, if we say we have fellowship with God but walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Well, let's see three things as we make our way through this psalm. First, David begins verse 1 with a priority of heart. A priority of heart. Notice how he begins. In fact, notice just the address. O Lord, all caps. O Yahweh, O covenant God. By uttering that name, he's already acknowledging tremendous truth. You are the God who has come to me in covenant. You're the God who has saved me. Initiating grace has laid hold of me, redeeming me with your mighty hand and outstretched arm. And O redeeming God who has saved my soul, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now the language here of the Lord's tent should remind us immediately of God's condescension to be with His people in the wilderness. It's an Exodus picture where Yahweh was abiding in a tent alongside of His people. Though Yahweh is a great king, indeed the great king above all the earth, while Israel wandered in the desert, the Lord of hosts 
the exalted Creator, the Sustainer and the Savior, He took up residence with His people. He dwelt in a tent that He might walk among His tent-dwelling people. One author has put it this way, in view of the love of God, love that would overthrow enemies, the Egyptians, love that would remember promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and provide everything that they needed, food, water from a rock, clothes that don't wear out, It's as though God's love is like this. Yahweh simply can't get close enough to His tent-dwelling people. He's got to come and dwell in a tent with them. Brethren, the Lord doesn't just show us a little pity and then withdraw. Give us a little saving grace sprinkled on and then run away somewhere else as though He's not personal. No, He pursues intimacy of relationship with His people. He is a husband to us and He wants us near to Him as a lovely bride. Well, in view of the nearness of God, His attending presence, verse 1, likewise, David is revealing a man who craves this intimacy with the Lord. The question is designed to say, I want to know God, the God who has known me. I want to be close to the One who saved me and sustains me and succors me with all of I need. As David asked this question, who, O Lord, shall sojourn in your tent? He's not asking it because he thinks it's impossible to be close to God. No, he wants to be close to God. Just like he knew of men like Noah and Abraham who walked with God. Now what a contrast this declaration is to the previous psalm. Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool despises God. He lives every moment as though God doesn't exist, pushing God away, not wanting to consider the Almighty. But here is a man who desires God. The foundational question of life is, how can I be close to you? How can I have communion with you? You tell me Psalm 1, the gateway to this altar. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Lord, I want to know You. I want to be close to You. Now brethren, why would we want nearness to God like this? Well, if you took the view of the devil who paints God as a killjoy, a taker, who never gives you what you want, did God really say You can't eat from any tree of the garden. You see, he's all about painting God as a hard taskmaster, one who is persnickety about the rules, and he's holding you back from your true potential. Or if you think about God like the servant in the parable of the talents, who was given one talent. You remember what he did with the talent, Matthew 25? He buried it. And what was his excuse? I knew you were a hard man. That's a view of God. I thought you were harsh, exacting, uncaring, even cruel. Well, if that is your view of God, then you wouldn't want to be near to Him. Brethren, the evil one keeps so many people, even believers, locked up in this false view of who God is and what He is like. There are believers who have hard thoughts of God, especially in times of suffering, so that we start to believe I don't want to be close to the Lord. There's something like that going on in the existential crisis of Asaph in Psalm 73. Maybe you remember the psalm. He 
He looks at the wicked prospering while he suffers every single day and he wonders, have I sought purity in vain? Is this desire to walk with God just a foolish notion? Well, he comes into the presence of God in worship and it changes everything. And he came to see, in spite of his hard thoughts of God, his stubborn, even beastly behavior, nevertheless, the Lord had stuck by him and guided him and given him the hope of glory. So the psalmist declares famously, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. And then he adds, For me, it is good to be near God. It is good to be near God. That's David's priority of heart with this question. It's good to be near God. The author of Hebrews will spell this out in great detail when he talks about how we get to draw near to God. He'll use that language about four times. Since we've been cleansed of sin and we have a great high priest, let us draw near to God with boldness. Or James 4.8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. That's David's attitude. I want to hide myself under the shadow of your wings, O Lord. I want to know you. I want to learn of you. I want to experience the joys of your presence and the peace that you give the hearts of the faithful. I want nothing more than to dwell in your house and gaze upon your beauty. Now brethren, is that what our lives are about? In this world with so many distractions, so many worldly cares, whether they're allurements or temptations, it's easy to lose sight of the one thing that matters. Knowing God. Being near to Him. Do you remember how the Apostle Paul will describe it as he looked at his former life and he said, whatever was gained to me, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. But he didn't stop just with a look at the past. He went on to say, indeed, I count. That is, I am presently counting right now. This is my daily perspective. I am counting everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Some translations will put like the ESV that's not strong enough. I count them as dung, as manure, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Paul is a one thing I do Christian. I want to know Christ. I want to be conformed to Christ. I want communion with Christ. For to me to live is Christ. Remember, Jesus Jesus is telling us that one of the joys of coming into fellowship with Him is having the Holy Spirit pitch His tent in our souls. Jesus will pray in John 17 that He wants us to be with Him where He is to see His glory. Our God is a with you kind of God. So what does the Lord require of us? that we could dwell with Him and abide with Him. Dear friends, if this is not the priority of our hearts, something is terribly wrong. Heaven or future glory is not merely about being close to the loved ones who've died and gone on before you. It's not simply about having personal reunions with family members who love Jesus, though hopefully that will be great. 
Heaven is not just about experiencing the end of suffering, but that too is great. Heaven is about Christ. And if you don't want to know Christ, you don't want to go there. Heaven is about Christ. It's about being in the tent of the Lord and dwelling with Him. Is that what we want? Are we losing sight of what really matters? What really matters is not the growth of your retirement plan. It's not whether the Braves or the Bulldogs win or Bama or the Buckeyes. You pick. What ultimately matters is not an upcoming dance recital or a choir rehearsal or a big renovation in your house or a family trip. It's not the latest reel on Instagram. It's not the political cycle. It's not what Chip and Joe or Ben and Aaron Napier might be building on HGTV or the Magnolia Network. What matters chiefly is being near to God. And are we a people who crave that nearness? Because everything else is total vanity. And sometimes, if we're honest, the trivial things of this world, however permissible they are, however enjoyable they are, they rise to an unhealthy level and they pull us away from the central thing of life, communion with God. David's psalm is given to recalibrate our souls. Do you see what really matters? And are you after it? Well, see secondly, not just this priority of heart, see patterns of life. In verses 2-5a, to we will have an answer to the question of verse 1. And it gives us a collage of God-pleasing conduct. Now the answer here to the question, who will sojourn in God's tent? is not exhaustive in Psalm 15. We could go read the Beatitudes of Jesus, for instance. We could read Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 about those to whom the Lord looks. But it is a summary of what God requires that we would be His guest. Isn't that a beautiful way to look at it? If you want to dwell with the Lord, if you want to be His guest, what does God require of us? Well, David is describing the life of the one who has fellowship with God. And there's symmetry to the list. There are three positives in verse 2 and three negatives in verse 3. Verses 4 and 5 follow suit with positive qualities and negative qualities. Well, let's examine the specifics. And we begin with the inclinations of life that characterize one wanting fellowship with God. His positive patterns. In the psalm, David, he uses three continuous action Hebrew participles and they are describing the way one in communion with God lives. How he walks continually, what he does continually, and what he speaks continually. We begin with how he walks. Verse 2, he who walks blamelessly, or he is continually walking blamelessly. Now many of us hear the word blameless and we just check out. Because oh, that's not me, forget it. Because we think that the word means flawless or sinless. That's not at all what it means. The root word of this word translated blameless means whole or complete. And the sense is wholehearted living. It simply describes a person who is loyal to God. This is the great call to Abraham. Walk before me and be blameless. That is, Abraham, be wholehearted to me. Be loyal. Abraham isn't earning God's favor. He's certainly not being perfect. The Lord came to him and made a covenant with him. 
And while many afflictions are present, some of Abraham's own making because of his sin, the Lord yet tells him, Abraham, behold towards me, give me your allegiance. We respond to God's chesed, his covenant faithfulness, with our own chesed, our own loyalty, our own covenant faithfulness. So the person who pursues communion with God, he wants to walk in integrity. Grace drives us to have devotion. Now that devotion as in Abraham's life or David's life may reveal many days of stupidity, of great sin. But there's always a coming back to the Lord that your wholeness belongs to Him. You are devoted to Him. And then the evidence of that loyalty is the further commitment to verse 2, doing what is right, outward obedience, and speaking the truth in his heart, inward obedience, a heart that is captive or a conscience that is captive to God. Wholehearted loyalty to God can never merely be skin deep, wrapped up in outward forms lip service in worship, or prideful expressions of piety, like the Pharisee Jesus mentions in Luke 18, who is thanking God that he's not like other men and boasting about how he prays and how he tithes and so forth. Loyalty, yes, it's displayed in what we do, but ultimately it's a matter of the heart. And the Lord sees our inclinations, our affections. The Lord desires truth in the inmost being. And while the wicked live out of their hearts, Psalm 14, verse 1 again, the fool says in his, where? His heart, there is no God. He rejects God from the heart and then runs on in his sin. The godly person also lives from his heart with a heart that some days feebly, some days coldly, some days with great distraction, but with a heart that wants to commune with God, there is a passion to do what is right. Is that us? Do we profess allegiance to the Lord, but then have an inward commitment to practical atheism, like the fool in the previous song? Or do our hearts burn to please God, to respond to His amazing grace? I've mentioned it before. I've quoted this, this hymn of Francis Scott Key, you know, the guy who wrote The Star-Spangled Banner. Number 80 in your hymnal. Lord, with glowing heart, I praise Thee for the bliss Thy love bestows. What, what a way to say it. What a prayer. Make my heart burn to live for You. Is that what we have? Further, brethren, do we talk to ourselves, pressing the truth into ourselves? Do you see that? He does what is right and He's speaking the truth in His heart. Christians talk to themselves. It's biblical. Do you see that right here? You're speaking the truth in his heart. We are engaged in thinking matters over from a level of the heart, biblically, and meditating on God's Word as to how we should live. Well, is that us? Are we just blitzing through life with no thought of what we're doing and how we're feeling? Or are we truly bound to serve the Lord, not just with our hands, but with the very depths of our being? The Lord searches our hearts. He knows. And while that's a terrifying thought to the religious formalist, the hypocrite, for the believer, this is a great source of comfort even when you are weak. 
Do you remember the words of Peter in John 21 when Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter's actions, his threefold denial of Christ, even with curses, had apparently indicated a divided heart, a desire to save himself rather than stand for Jesus. But even in that, even in this great surprisal of sin where Peter is shocked by his own sinfulness, even that didn't ultimately show where his heart was loyal. Because when Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? Do you remember what Peter says? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. What a great comfort that is to the believer. Yes, we're weak and foolish. We stumble. But the Lord knows if we speak the truth in our heart. The Lord knows if we love Him. And the one who will dwell with God is the one who loves Him, who clings to truth inside, who strives to please God, and then whose life is devoted to God. And then David moves on to describe the patterns of life, talking about our words. He says in verse 3, the one who pleases God is the one who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. James 3 reminds us of the danger of the tongue. It is a fire that sets ablaze hell itself. If you study the Scriptures detailing our depravity, you will always find the tongue mentioned. Isaiah 6 is a great example. Isaiah, you remember, sees the Lord seated on His throne with splendor and the praise of angels, and He's rocked over His own sinfulness. And Do you remember what He says? Arshia mentioned it earlier. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of, what? Unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. In other words, my words show my heart. My words betray sin against you. And of course, in Isaiah 6, the Lord sends a cherub to take a burning coal from the altar and touch Isaiah's lips. Can you imagine what that felt like? To cleanse him. The mouth of the man of God, the believer, has to be consecrated to the Lord. Indeed, David is saying what characterizes the godly person, the person near to God, is how he uses his tongue. Indeed, the restraint of his mouth. He doesn't scatter damaging words or cast slurs against his friend. And friend here doesn't mean your bosom buddy. It it doesn't simply mean even a close companion. It's just the generic word for your fellow man. You don't go around slinging zingers at people, spreading evil, and backbiting. Rather, the man who has fellowship with God is one who labors to keep his tongue from evil. What is that our pattern? Brethren, do we measure our words knowing we will give an account for every one? Do we refuse to speak with ridicule, derision, and mockery? The idea here of taking up reproach is what Goliath did before Israel and David. Remember Goliath heaping scorn on Israel, on Yahweh, on that little stick of a boy? Am I a dog that you come to play with me, play with me with sticks, he says? The little stick of a boy, David, he's mocking him. In our culture, words are cheap, and mockery is everywhere. 
People in our day take sick pleasure in reproaching others. In fact, I dare say it's become presidential. Whether you're on the left or the right, mockery has become a virtue. It is not. It is despicable. We must abhor such speech and remember that it's a travesty to bless God with our tongues and then curse man. That should be forbidden. It is forbidden. It should be off limits. If you live like that, you're not dwelling with God. And then David addresses our affections in verse 4. Where the ties of our friendship lie. He says, the godly man looks upon the vile and despises them, but he honors those who fear the Lord. Now the language of despising a vile person may sound to us like a holier-than-thou posture. We remember again the Pharisee despising that wretched tax collector from this attitude of superiority. That is not what David intends. It's rather akin to Abraham in his encounter in Genesis 14 with the king of Sodom when he had rescued Lot from captivity. The king of Sodom sought Abraham's allegiance by offering him the plunder. And Abraham basically said, I ain't taking nothing from you because it's going to come with strings attached. My loyalty will not be with you. The people of God cannot be yoked together with the sons of darkness. It's not that we fail to show kindness or to pray for a vile person, but we reject their commitment to blaspheme God. We will not stand in their counsel. We will not walk with them the things that they do. We will not sit down in the scoffing seat. Our yoke is bound with those who love the Lord. To them we are committed. Well, again, is that what we see? Our, our, our friendships with the wicked or with our fellow pilgrims on the way to glory? How can we be the Lord's guest seeking close fellowship with Him if we delight in what He hates? And then David finally in this point focuses on our dealings in verses 4 and 5 who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. The godly person is full of integrity. He doesn't commit to attending an event and then ditch it because something better came along. He doesn't enter into a contract or a friendly agreement and then renege because of a better price. He keeps his word to his hurt. Oh, how we believers must be people who swear and don't shrink back. We rest our whole lives on the unchangeable Word of God. The fact that His Word never fails us. In fact, Jesus is the Word. He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And we benefit tremendously from the Lord's unfailing commitment. Commitment that comes at great cost to Himself. For Jesus, out of covenant love, is willing to keep His Word even though it means what for Him? It means death, even death on a cross. Well, we see that kind of sacrificial service and we become what we worship. We eye the love of God. We eye the love of Christ who loved me and gave Himself up for me. And we stand by our commitments. This is the person who has fellowship with the Holy God. Likewise here, the 
aim of a man wanting communion with God is to help others, not to get rich. Now, in the Old Covenant Law Code, lending money at interest is not universally condemned, but it was condemned in the covenant community. We don't prey upon the needy and afflicted in the covenant community by using their misfortune as a means to our profit. In the family of God, we bear one another's burdens. We attend to the weak with no extortion. And there's a principle here of imitating the giving God. We don't show partiality. We will not be bribed so as to twist the truth. We won't ignore the plight of the innocent. We want justice and mercy. We want truth to be upheld. Now again, David's description here is just representative. However, certainly you're seeing, aren't you, that God's people must not be superficial, insincere professors of faith. They must be people who walk in the truth. We've been changed by grace, rescued from darkness, and we walk in the light. What fellowship can the light have with the darkness? How can we say we have communion with God if we cast off His Word and don't even pay attention to His ethical standards? Now, Psalm 15 does something else for us. It shows us our sin. Don't you read this psalm and see, man, I I am a failure. I have not walked in integrity. I have not done what is right. I have not spoken the truth in my heart. But, dear friend, there is a Savior who came to rescue you from your sin. All your covenantal failings. All the ways you don't measure up to the Lord. And that Savior cleanses you and then He gives you the Holy Spirit. Not so that you can now go do whatever you want. But He gives you the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 3 and 4, so that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. Jesus bore our penalty on the tree in order that having died to sin, we might now live to righteousness. The Spirit of God who makes His home in us is transforming us from one degree of glory to another. If we're united to Christ then we are necessarily resisting sin and bearing godly fruit. And here's the good news. Those who walk like this shall have the fellowship of God Almighty. And then finally we see the promise of God. This is a brief thought just at the very end of verse 5. After this description of the patterns of life characterizing those in communion with God, we hear this promise. He who does these things shall never be moved. Literally, he shall continually not be shaken or continually not slip or continually not be overthrown forever. Now, the promise should really strike us because David had asked, O Lord, who may sojourn in your tent? And we may think after this description that we'll hear, this person may dwell with me. This person will get to be my guest. But actually what the Lord says here is more than that. He's saying, the one who does these sayings will be kept continually and kept forever. He won't be like a pebble on the hillside breaking free and falling away. No, the one imitating the Lord, the one living in communion with God will never be shaken. It's similar to the promise of Psalm 46. You remember the psalm, God is our refuge and strength, our ever-present help 
in time of trouble, when the mountains fall into the heart of the sea and its waters roar and foam, we won't be afraid. The, the earth is moving under my feet. All creation's coming unglued. But when that happens, we won't fear. Why not? Psalm 46.5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Same word. Not shaken. Not slipping. Not overcome by all the terrors of the world. That is total lasting security. In Psalm 46, that security is applied to the church at large. The people, the city where God dwells, it won't be moved. In Psalm 15, it's applied to the individual believer. If you want communion with God, turning from evil and being wholehearted towards the Lord, He will keep you forever. What a glorious promise. The Lord is telling us as we walk with Him, as we experience the nearness of His presence and abide in His Word, He holds us so that we shall not fall. Of course, you know, the opposite is also true. And Paul has made that abundantly clear in Galatians 5 and Colossians 3 and Ephesians 3. If anyone walks, keeps on doing unrighteousness, if you walk in idolatry, immorality, impurity, and covetousness, judgment will follow. You will have no taste in the inheritance of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But the person who walks worthily of Christ, which is proof of new life, not you earning a spot in God's kingdom, you can never do that, but the person who's walking in new life, that person has abiding hope. We have spiritual benefits now, peace with God, access to God, abiding grace, and we have the hope of the glory of God. We have the promise, 1 Peter 1.5, that our God will keep us by His power through faith. Beloved, as we hear this incredible psalm, let us not be as Israel who frequently presumed that they walk with God just because they said His name? Let us be people who actually walk with God. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, I love this verse, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. It's not about how we talk. It's about how we walk. The power of a transformed life. Do you have a changed life because you've been brought near into the fellowship of the Lord. May this kind of integrity be our desire because the nearness of God is our good. And if we're near to Him, we can't help but be changed by Him. May that be what we see as we look within. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, You are a God of grace and kindness who would allow sinners such as we are to experience fellowship with You. Lord, we come thankful for the cleansing blood of Christ. We recognize this psalm shows us our sin, but it also shows us how Your law is a rule to guide us. And Lord, we pray that we would be a people who walk worthily of our calling. A people who desire communion with You, the nearness of Your presence and thereby who follow the voice of our King. Lord, produce in our hearts, produce in our inclinations and in our motives and our affections, produce in our words, produce in our dealings a life that is pleasing to You. And we pray that You would do it by the power of Your Holy Spirit. 
for we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.